to From No to Nothing Ontological Oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology, and with me today is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. For nearly 100 years, Rube Goldberg machines have captured the public imagination. From comic strips in the 1920s to TikTok in the 2020s, our fascination with seeing an intricately complex contraption perform the simplest of functions never fails to entertain us. But can it be more than entertainment? Perhaps these machines are demonstrating an important philosophical position. If you're the type of curmudgeon who asks why someone would go through all the effort to build such a machine when the task could be performed much more simply, then you have a working understanding of Occam's razor. That's a really good start. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, Occam's razor, I think that probably a lot of listeners are, are familiar with it, but um, you know, I think that the normal formulation of uh, of the uh the principle is misstated very often so it is there's some interesting there's some interesting stuff in here for sure um what what is occam's razor well, well occam's razor is i'm going to really boil it down and what can build it back up occam's razor is the notion that you shave away you you cut out any complexity that doesn't necessarily seem to need to be in a proposition in order to, uh, or an explanatory paradigm in order to make it work. And it was associated with William of Ockham, spelled variously, in uh, Times Medieval, who was a philosopher, not spot on with all of the different categories he talked about, but, but a major player at the time. Um, but he never really actually said that. <laughs> uh, but he 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 talked about the idea of of parsimony, which is uh, an old word for being stingy. <laughs> and so this is idea stinginess, really. But it but it goes all the way back to the uh, the the first ancient philosophers. Yeah, I was about to say when I was doing research for it. Um Aristotle was was even known to say some variation of, um, yeah, you know, keep your ideas simple if you can. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no assumptions should be. Don't make unnecessary assumptions. Mm. Now that sounds great on the surface, but oh, all the complexity in that. Yeah, yeah. I think it's interesting that you know it can be traced all the way back to Aristotle, and then variously. It, there's a strong thread of it throughout history. It makes you wonder when when that idea did first occur. When because I, it doesn't seem to be something that is um, necessarily self evident. You know, in that in that sort of way, where um, you know the way that they use a lot is um, adding ad hoc um, hypotheses, right? So basically, if you just keep saying um, well, hey, this this hypothesis will work if I add this. Um, then you can make almost anything right. So it seems like if you were an early thinker, you'd almost say, well, complexity is a good thing, right? Because if we just keep adding on, we'll eventually get to the answer. Um, but that's that wasn't the case. From a very early time, they knew, no, nope, if you if you have a small number of of thing assumptions, you're more likely to be right. And he's an Occam himself was known for a, a couple of isms, one of one being nominalism, which uh, and, and reductionism, 
which often has a negative connotation, but but uh, nominal, nominalism is the idea that universals really don't uh, mean much. There's no corresponding meaning. They're just a word. Hmm. Uh, which is interesting because he was uh, a, a devout God worshiper. So, yeah. you know, and so you, you, you take the concept, but we've talked about the concept of God before, but it's interesting that, that, uh, so nominalism is, is about giving names. Hmm. Um, and, and, and so you're looking at, uh, to, uh, the nominalist wants properties, wants numbers, wants data, want, you know, and, and, and wants things to be more specific. Hmm. But then the nominalist essentially says, okay, but, Keep the specifics that are necessary, but not the specifics that aren't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is um, it's interesting because this this goes into um, crosses over into like audio production in a lot of ways. One thing that you get warned about when you're um, doing mixing for music or for a podcast or anything really is that um, you don't want to over do it. And it's hard to tell when that point is. If you start using tools, your EQs and your compressions and your saturators and stuff, um, there's this temptation where your ears, each change you make, your ears get used to it. And so as you keep making changes, your ears keep getting used to it. And to you, it keeps sounding like you're, it's getting better and better. But to somebody who's never heard it, or if you were to walk away and come back, all of a sudden you realize Ooh, this sounds really unnatural and strange because I've done too much. I've, you know, and usually what happens is you get too much noise into the the signal, right? If you're, you know, you're trying to make it sound good by making it appeal to the human hearing range, but then the saturation kind of builds up and it's almost sort of um, staticky or harsh. You know, uh, that's that's a good paradigm. I I, I have a parallel one from. Uh, from being an artist. It, one of the lessons I was taught and, and continue to have uh, handed to me gently, kindly, and, and wonderfully by my art teacher is uh, choose the minimal color that you need. With one color, the values of one color, you can do an incredible piece. But if you need a variety of colors, okay. But there's a point at which you can oversaturate. Hmm. Uh, when I uh, do uh, photography and I, I put things, I, I try to adjust the exposure and, and, and the brightness and saturation, all of those things. You can lose yourself in that, but you sort of walk through and see what each one of these things do and, and to learn it, but then you say, well, no, I don't want that. This a little bit. And it's not, it's not this like arbitrary well, I'll just slide the scale over this far, and that'll be fine. You're 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 seeing what the eye tells you. Is this too busy? Is it does it render the piece more compelling or or just disrupt it? And I think that that's the better side of Occam. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's that's a very good parallel. It's very similar in audio mixing mm-hmm. as it is with photo editing, and almost everybody has experience with that on their phones, editing you know photos and stuff. You know that idea that. And the principle applies, right? You want to make the the smallest number of changes to make the photo look good. Because if you make too many, everybody knows what it looks like. It just starts to look very strange, very too busy, you know? <laughs> um, but then the question of, well, what is the minimum number of changes? Why do I need to make any changes at all, right? Isn't 
if I take the photo, you know, isn't that technically mission accomplished, right? I captured what the lens was actually picking up. But aesthetically, right? Right. We go, no. we go, I think there's one of two mindsets, right? You either say, I'm going to edit this to try to make it more representational of what the photo originally looked like. Um, so, you know, maybe you add some, some warmth to it or you, you know, you, uh, you add a little bit of contrast or something and you go, well, this is more what my eye saw as opposed to what the camera captured. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I think the other motivation, you know, rather than realism would be idealism, right? Would be to say, okay, well, this isn't what, what I've edited the picture into is not what my eye saw but this would be the perfect picture, right? The ideal, right? The, the, the platonic ideal of what this picture could be, right? Yes. And then you have the other, other side of the aesthetic, which is to say, I'm not trying to be representational. Mm. I'm seeing, I, mean, I often, it's part of what I like to do. I use all kinds of mediums, but I, one of the things I like to do is when my eye catches something that shows me in the mundane something extraordinary, and this past week I was taking uh, diptych shots, uh, the shots with, with two pieces in, in one, which amounted to two slabs of sidewalk uh, going into the YMCA in my town. And and because of all the salt and, and dirt and, and flow from snow melt and rain uh, where we live, incredible patterns and and in, uh, just an example in one and I saw this thing it looked something like a figure hmm. and I wanted to reveal that figure well, because as part of my artistic intention is there are, there are extraordinary things in the very ordinary don't cast a second glance to. so that wasn't being representational but it was using the tools to lure out so that, so in, in, in essence you are um Using an X-ray device or a mass spectrometer or whatever you know, infrared, whatever it is, to say, oh well, if I adjust the color, if I just, but even with photography, I've had the good fortune of being with many photographers. My my brother's a photographer. People at the college that I used to teach at were first rate and and black and white photography. There. There was a whole debate about black and white photography. Well, that's not really what the world looks like. Well, then you're strictly representational, and that's not. And so, if we if we take Occam's razor and say, "Well, I just want the simplest picture of the of this whatever the situation happens to be," then it sounds great. You know, I like to watch detective shows too and everything, but usually. There are extraneous things that by the by the excising of them, by cutting them out, you might be missing some. Yeah, and so I we'll get back into the the main um portion of, of the podcast, but I think we've entered a really interesting space that I didn't anticipate. And I <laughs> like we always do. And it it makes me wonder, right? Can Occam's razor be applied to aesthetics? Because I think in a representational sense. I can see a place for it, right? Okay, making the minimal number of changes to try to re, you know, re-represent what was seen. Okay, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But when you go to that other side, when you go from um, realism or representationalism into idealism, idealism is um, that's seems to me to be purely subjective, right? Because idealism to one person might be, um, you know, a perfect, you know, okay, well, this isn't what my eyes saw, but this would be a perfect um, way of representing what this would look like. This is the ideal of this photo. But for somebody else, that idea will be completely different. And in, like you said, depending on the creativity and the the headspace of the person doing the editing, it could be very different, right? It could yeah. be something that is not at all representational, something that becomes almost abstract in a certain way. That might, be their, or that might be their ideal um, a termination point of the editing process. So... You want to give an impression. You want to do an impression. Uh, and you want to have ultimate tension mm. in a piece of music that you're writing. Yeah. And and you know so well because you make such, I, I, I am happy to say, it's remarkable music. But I know you make choices. And, and uh, I think of uh, movie soundtracks. There are all kinds of ways to, uh, to make tension part of the sound. In, in one of the uh, plays that I've been reading over the past year, uh, there is a signature that is still used in the theater with the play, and it's a single guitar string pluck break. And that's the most tense moment in the play. One, there's sometimes music and so on, but that's just incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I think about, um, you know, John Williams with the Jaws theme, right? <laughs> two notes. It's just two <laughs> notes, but with an ever ascending tempo, right? You know, that's, that's sort of Occam's razor in an aesthetic sense, right? What's the minimal number of elements that you need to, um, to portray what you're trying to portray? Well, two notes and an increasing tempo. I mean, it's hard to break it down to fewer elements than that. There's a marvelous musician that I that I uh, know I've known her mother forever. She her name is Zoe Keating, and and she's known worldwide, and she does soundtracks for films and songs. She, she like everyone was sidelined in the pandemic, but got back out there and did a concert in an empty hall. Uh, she's an amazing person, and and Zoe primarily. Cello, tapping on the cello, stringing on the cello, plucking the pizzicato, all kinds of things. She, she, she's done some very interesting horror film, uh, tense music, just with that. So that's a, a minimalism. Hmm. Uh, or as my art teacher would, would say, it's a, it's a choice of, of unlimited range that opens up unlimited possibilities because of limitations. So this takes us back to what we were talking about, um, you know, really a, a couple of weeks ago. Um, the, the idea that you can, well, last week, you, you, you can jute, jute sing, you can get right outside of the box entirely. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I, what do you, <laughs> has there been <laughs> examples of Occam's Razor used in aesthetics historically? Or has it mostly been, we know that it's been used in scientific and in philosophical thought. Right. 
but has has there been attempts to use it aesthetically or have most people considered it to be outside of its usefulness i've never you know and, and, and cautiously as one person as an academic i'm pretty well read but i've never yet i haven't yet encountered someone who refers specifically to Occam's razor as a rule of thumb <laughs> uh, for art it may I, it's probable that it's out there it's just like yeah. you know Russell's teacup out around Jupiter, yeah, or yeah. but I haven't. I have, but it certainly makes sense to me. Yeah, I think that it has uses, especially like we were talking about in, in representational um, media, specifically, and but in creative outlets as well, like we were just talking about with with the Jaws theme, or um, you know, I think I've talked about on the show even a couple times. Um, you know, sometimes the best way to write um, or to spark creativity in a writing process is to actually set limitations right mm-hmm. um and we uh, yeah when we were looking at dennett last week he said you know you had that example of um yeah sit down at a piano and try to write a melody right you have endless possibilities you yeah. could you could write anything right but you it's a, it's so hard to come up with something good like it's much easier to come up with something good if you take a known commodity and then try to change it in some way to make it something new you know mm-hmm. so why why was there a need for Occam's razor to be developed? Why, where was this impetus? We have this thread running throughout history that, that the simpler answer is going to be the best one. I think out of a sense of intentional, maybe, maybe at first unconscious, but I think it very quickly becomes intentional. An intentional um, caution to, to use an old metaphor, to rein the horses in just a little bit, uh, to keep the kids not just running down the street, but getting in the car when Grandpa wants them to. You know, it's 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 to say, okay, that's a that's a lot of energy. That's fine, but but where is this going to take us? I mean, there's some really interesting examples. I'm sure you've you've run into them. Well, this is they're so mundane, but they're wonderful. Uh, when you hear hoofbeats, don't first think zebras, right? Unless you happen to be living in a place where there are herds <laughs> of zebras, right? You 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 think the horses, or if if you see a, a figure, I'll always I love this one. It's, it's been out there quite a while. You see figure ants, an ant or ants uh, manipulating, moving around in the sand, and you end up seeing a famous figure like well, well, the eyes often he's Winston Churchill. And and do you assume that the ants have uh, purposely made Winston Churchill, or do you assume it's just a coincidence and you're making a pattern in, in your head? So I, I think it's a cautionary. Yeah, be be creative. Go go nuts for a little bit, but then when you're done with all that brainstorming, try to go to the thing that seems most reasonable. Mm. At the moment. Yeah, the thing that requires the least number of elements to explain what you're observing. And I think it's cautionary in, in our in our own time, uh, but I, uh, and I think probably for any number of reasons back through, well, to try to encapsulate it all just isn't going to work. But, you know, any times when, when like, for, for instance, when, when the church was governing everything and people had had enough and were pushing back, or when in the Enlightenment, when when science is coming back 
and going further than ever before. And rationality is in the fore. Um, you, you are having a collision, a major collision of agendas. And Occam's razor, well applied, can, can help with that. So I think it's cautionary across the ages. I think particular times in history, significant clashes arise, um, which are usually uh, ideological or politically based and or theologically based, and, and there needs to be some explanation to back people off and say, well, let's really look at this. So it, in our own time, I think it's particularly useful in conspiracy theory dismantling. Um, yeah, yeah. Leaping to conclusion, leaping to assumptions. Or, yeah, and there's things that go along with Occam's Razor that, that help you identify that. Like I mentioned earlier, the the ad hoc you know, hypothesis, which is, um, you know, if you come up with a theory, right, and then a, a hole is shot in that theory, if you, rather than abandoning the theory or reformulating it, if you then just add in something else that patches the hole, right, and then another hole gets shot in, then you patch that hole until you just have this patchwork thing, you know, mm-hmm. and you say, well, it's holding water, so it must be true. And you go, well, you, you could have just had a one-piece boat, <laughs> you know, rather than trying to, you know, sew together tin cans. Cartoons to make- <laughs> do this all the time. Mickey Mouse cartoons or or, or what have you. There's, I, I was watching something with my granddaughter the other day. There's a, it's a whole series of Tinkerbell, you know, fairy stories. But there's a there's a roof leak. It's the exact thing you're talking about in this cottage in an early 20th century England, and for this girl that the fairy has been captured by and blah blah blah. But but to get the fairy, the fairy wants to help the little girl, and so she's going to fix the roof. But she tinkers a fix that involves a Rube Goldberg machine guiding the water down up to a pail, which then spills out through a hole in the floor. <laughs> like okay all right that's exactly it there would be a simpler way to do it yeah yeah and that's that's sort of a good representation of most conspiracy theories right you you come up with this premise whatever it is you know that there's lizards running the government or something and you know that's pretty easy to to falsify on face value so then you just continue adding more and more complex and convoluted elements to it until you go well you can't disprove it. And that's part of what Occam's razor is useful for is it, it using the least number of elements provides in a very important um, scientific principle for hypothesis, which is falsifiability. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, in order for something to be considered scientific, it has to be falsifiable, right? You have to, you have to be able to say, we, we're going to test this and actually see if it holds water. Well, yes. you know, if, if I tell you that the way that you're listening to this podcast is, you know, there's a leprechaun shouting it from a, the top of a water tower <laughs> and it's coming to your ears that way. Well, there, you know, you might say, well, no, it's not. It's coming over electricity or the, well, you know, that's easy to say, but electricity is really just leprechaun. <laughs> you know, like you just keep going on and on. You yeah. can't falsify it because every time I just add an ad hoc hypothesis that prevents it from being falsified. Right. That's not really 
a, a great way to go about Don't thinking. Don't <laughs> multiply entities beyond necessity. That's another way that, that Occam's razor has been mm. expressed. Well, let's see. We got leprechauns, we got fairies, we got everything. All right. And it's fun. It is fun. And there's something uh, unscientifically joyful in folklore. But one knows it's folklore. You know, it, 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 another Alchemist Razor example as well. If you're, somebody's reading, uh, doing a tarot reading, if you're, and, and it happens, they tell you something that you find is, oh, that was right about me. They must supernatural told them and they told me. Now, I'm, I'm trying to be careful about this because I'm, I'm not, I am not bashing spiritualism. Lilydale is a fascinating place. One can have experiences one can't uh, necessarily explain to one's own satisfaction. But one can still find simpler explanations that is, so you can live in that realm uh, Mrs. Roosevelt once talked about where you can hold two opposing ideas uh, at the same time, but something inside you tells you, yeah, it's probably this simpler one. Yeah. Not always, because then it can be misused. And, 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 and again, I'm trying to trade carefully, but it can be, it's, it's Occam's razor-like to say, well, we don't need all these physics and metaphysics uh, explanations of quantum universe. You just, God created the universe. That's so much simpler than looking at all this stuff. But it isn't because it doesn't explain anything. Right. Yeah, and that's that is an important point. Is that um, you know Occam's razor is not a a scientific. Um, uh, what am I looking for? It's not a scientific thing. It's it's a principle. It's a that, rule of thumb. It's a rule of thumb. Yes, it's a principle. <laughs> and so. And yeah, there's a lots of places where that gets sort of murky, right? Like I'm taking neuroscience this semester. And so going through the history of neuroscience, you know, they say, well, you know, when they used to dissect human brains back in, you know, the, the Middle Ages, hmm. they'd open it up and they'd see these ventricles, these big um, open spaces inside the brain. They'd say, oh, well, we know that humans have souls, right? So here's these three ventricles and this one is where reason is and this one's where emotion is and this one's where our soul is, right? Um, but, you, you know, it, it, that made sense to them because it, it's this empty spot and that's where it is. That's a pretty simple explanation, right? Rather than looking at sodium ion <laughs> gates and or, you know sodium potassium gates and chloride and axonomic yep. you know autoreceptors and all these other things astrocytes and glial cells and the the truth is much more complex which you know I, it appears to be a violation of Occam's razor but like you said the explanatory value and the evidence for the the theories are important and i think that um you know, one thing I was reading is that Occam's razor works if you have two competing hypotheses that are trying to make the same prediction. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. if you have two hypotheses that are making different predictions, you can't use Occam's razor. And so if you think about that medieval, um, medieval quote unquote neuroscience versus modern neuroscience, really the predictions they're trying to make about the human being are, are not the same, you know, the, where the medieval surgeon was starting from and the presence of, 
you know, the immaterial body is not one that is um, thought of as in the same way as it is in right. modern science. Right. So, I, I, just a little side note because you—that was lovely excursion, and I think it was very helpful. But a little, a little side trip. Just step off the path for a minute. When we say the word "rule of thumb," something needs to be clarified too, because as you said, it's 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 at best a principle. It is. It's an, another intuition pump. It's just a tool. You know, the rule of thumb has many, uh, the provenance, where it comes from, has many sources, but one that it wasn't, which people often refer to, which has been discounted uh, utterly over the years, was that uh, it was about a judge telling a man in England that he couldn't, uh, he couldn't hit his wife with a rod that was, thicker than his thumb. Well, that it, it exists in no written form. It's simply an anecdotal, a misapplied anecdote. Um, and you think, if you think about it, a, a man's thumb size and a woman's thumb size generally, um, probably it would have been the woman's thumb, not the man, but it, it wasn't done. It was t- it's, a, it's a fallacious statement, but rule of thumb means uh, it goes to brewing, uh, dipping your thumb in to check brewing. It's, it was used in nautical terms. It's uh, used in carpentry as what you'd think, ruler. Your thumb's a ruler. Well, how many of us have, have decided roughly how much square footage there is in a place by pacing? Right. Right. Well, our, our foot is roughly a foot long. Well, some people's feet are, it's not exact. Right. Mm. So rule of thumb is just, uh, a placeholder, uh, not an accurate thing, but a placeholder to get you somewhere. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that that that's really good because, um, you know, although it's a principle, right, and it, it does help you get. It's not a law, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I think that that that's an important part is is this idea that you know it's you can't use Occam's razor to compare things that are not the same, right? You, it has to you have to be making the same. Yeah. Um, predictions. So, yeah, yeah. I think that coming back to your, your, um, your one about, yeah, it's much easier to say God created the universe rather than having all this other stuff. Mm. I think that it's worth asking the question, are we actually, are we actually asking the same question when we talk about the origins of the universe or the origins of life? Um, when, if we're looking at it from a scientific view versus a theological view, and if we are asking the same questions, then Occam's razor would apply. But if we are not making the same predictions, we're not asking the same questions, then it can't really be used anyways. And if it can't be used anyways, then the two could probably be, are not mutually exclusive necessarily. Uh-huh. Um, and, and our Occam's razor can be weaponized, um, intentionally to, Again, uh, in a in a purposely false way to attack things, but that's but then there's that corollary, corollary which we've heard about, which we'll get to, which is called Occam's broom. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Before we get there, um, do you want to you want to talk about some of? The, are there any other limitations or criticisms of Occam's razor we should cover? Well, let's let, let's recap. Um, it's it's it is an attempt to. To involve the minimal number number of steps or entities in order to provide an explanation, 
Uh, it's a guide. It's not an absolute. Uh, it can be helpful, but it can also be misleading. And probably not in equal terms, but it depends entirely how carefully it's applied. Hmm. So I think that for me, that's probably enough. You probably have another thought for it. Yeah, I'm wondering if it's also, you know, we should probably also add in something about it being contextually based, right? We talked about aesthetics, oh, yes. aesthetics earlier, yes. right? Yeah. It, it's a good tool for scientific and for some aspects of philosophical thought and maybe some aspects of aesthetic thought. But like, for we, we know for probably in most creative settings, um, it might not just be inapplicable, but even harmful to to use that sort of rule. And a lot of creative processes, you're you're really looking for a uh, a, a multiplication of of ideas in order right. to get where right. You want. Yeah, no, that, that's a, that's a really good point. And 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 linked to that, and since you've said that, it's heard some more thought in the old cranium. It's when we use the word simple, the the, the simplest. When we say the simplest. Explanation that doesn't mean that it's simple. The simplest explanation for how an eye works is still a multi step biological, physiological, uh, neurocognitive process. You, you, you can't reduce that to two steps. Yeah. Uh, so it's Occam's razor. Uh, is, I think, necessarily tied to, if not obviously tied to, um, the the illusion of explanatory depth again. Mm-hmm. Well, I can tell you how a phone works. Here are two steps for a telephone. Okay, well, you were just talking about the electricity a moment ago. Well, oh, no, no, there's more to it than that. So Occam's Razor is not an out, uh, you know, an escape hatch for people who can't adequately explain something. Uh, I, I think that should be said. Yeah, and I think that this goes back to our the illustration of neuroscience, right? Where you say, oh, well, it's much simpler to say, oh, you have these ventricles in the brain and that's where your soul is. Um, and it's much more complicated to say, oh, well, you have all of the different structures of the brain and the nervous system that I mentioned. Um, that's way more complex. So where does Occam's razor come in? Well, I think where it comes in is, like you were saying, the key term is not the, it's the simplest solution to explain the phenomenon. So if you, if you were to start from the, and this actually happened with um, Da Vinci, I think, um, he bought an ox brain and poured wax into it to actually form a mold of the ventricles of the ox. And through that little experiment, he said, oh, you know what, these, these don't actually look like what the uh, other people who are studying it says they are, and they're, they're not filled with bile or with, with anything like that, so they probably don't serve the function that they were saying. And then he started hypothesizing about what the purpose of the ventricles actually was, right? Mm-hmm. And so, because of that scientific um, experiment process that he did, um, they needed a new, another step in order to explain what this thing was. And so lots of times that's the way that, that science progresses, right? Um, even until very recently, um, they weren't sure how, like the gyrus of the brain, like when you look at the brain on the outside and you have that very um, 
uh, sort of squiggly yeah. uh, appearance. Um, until very recently, they didn't know how the cells did that, how they got there. And then they found out that, well, they actually have these glial cells that string out and then neurons actually crawl up them to get to, to get there. And so that's a very, that's a very complex thing, right? Yes. You, you can't explain that simply and then talk about how they, how they proliferate and prune and connect and do all these different things. It's, it is a complex process, but you need the simplest version of that very complex thing. And you may find that this is a, you just made an important point. If you, if you apply Occam's razor, you, as you're just describing, you, sometimes you're going to find you need an extra step. I don't need 10 extra steps, but I need one. Oh, well, maybe I need one more, but that's enough. And then it finishes it off. So in that, metaphorically, it is very much like art. You know when you're done. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's a satisfying unity, that that, that composition. Yeah, I, I, but I also think that it's just as hard to know when to be done scientifically as it is um, aesthetically, right? Like I said, I think the, the most common example that anybody can relate to is that photo editing, right? If you want, if you took a photo on your phone and all you want to do is the very simple task of editing the photo in such a way that it looks like what your eye actually saw in real life, um, you start making changes and those, those changes are additive, right? So the first one you might go, oh, okay, well, by adjusting um, the temperature of the photo, now it looks good. Um, but it's not quite right. So now I'm going to adjust the contrast. Well, the contrast interacts with the warmth that you added in such a way. And then that interacts with the saturation and that interacts with this. And then all of a sudden you get to a point where you go, no, I, I don't know when it happened, but at some point it went overboard. At yes. some point it went too far. That happens not just aesthetically, but that also happens in in explanatory Science, science or philosophy yeah, as well where of course. where you're doing something and you go okay yeah now it makes sense and then I, this happens to me at work all the time yeah now now this now this machine will work right and, and, you know one of the engineers will go yeah but if you took out that and that and that and then just put a line straight there it, you know you have a lot less things that are going to break if we <laughs> sure what you did will work um, but there's a lot of things that could break between here and there as opposed to if you just did this. And I go, oh, okay, that makes so much more sense now, but I couldn't see it that way when I started the process. Right. It's a scaffolding. Uh, it's a, a rather rapid, it doesn't feel like, but kind of scaffolding. Uh, one of my go-tos, Star Trek. Scotty sabotages uh, a much newer starship than the Enterprise in one of the movies. And Kirk says, Scotty, that's a miracle. And, and no, sir, the more they complicate the plumbing, the easier it is to stop up the drain. <laughs> that's Occam's razor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We hear, you hear a lot of people complain about it with, uh, you know, new cars. Why they put these computers and everything? Oh, it's, everything is so easy to break. Well, and then you're looking at trade-offs, right? Are there more pieces that could break? Yes. But is there also significantly more functionality than you would have had in cars from 30 or 40 years ago? Yes. yes. So, you know, it, that's sort of, again, a, a scientific or physical representation of um, 
our neuroscience thing, right? Okay, well, it's getting more complex, but it, it is also adding more features. So, um, my dad's a mechanic and, and, uh, was, he's retired and, uh, he, he has a, a new car. He's never had a new car before, this new car that he's leasing. And the things that, that he comes to about it, he's, he's coming to it from a viewpoint of a life of experience with cars. And I respect that, but it's also uh, how I liked it back when, <laughs> right? And, and everything from, how, I think his primary issue is n- not that there are so many different buttons and so on. It's that what he thinks are the necessary things aren't foregrounded. Hmm. So he was looking for the, you know, we were looking for what used to be called the cigarette lighter, but now it's just the, ele- the, the plug-in for charging things. Uh, and it's, it's, I found it, or actually he, he managed to find it. I couldn't even see it at first. We were looking where it generally would be. He, he found it by shining a flashlight and, and it's way down underneath the shelf. And he said, this is what I'm talking about. That's something that people would use. Why should that be hidden? Because engineers are just trying to make everything look so pretty. And I said, no, it's not just a matter of aesthetics, <laughs> but we were getting into this, right? Yeah. And this is, is this what you're talking about? Yeah, I think cars are a really great example because they do combine a lot of things that people find important. They have to be scientific and engineering marvels. You 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 need to make them compact. You need to make them accessible. They have to function a certain way. We want them to look good. You know, we want them to do all. We want of these them things. not to pollute as much. Well, some of us do, but yeah, you know, those are all complicated things. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, this I. You know, Occam's razor when you're looking at these things becomes very um, interesting. Yeah, and it, you know, it doesn't mean that any, any criticism of a new thing is is curmudgeonly, right? I remember the the, the one that really got to me was um, when I got a new car, and it was a coupe, it was a two door car, and the only option was power windows and locks. <laughs> and I go, now this is where Occam's razor would come in handy, right? Because it would be much cheaper. Uh, it would be much more reliable. It would be much safer to just have windows that I can roll down and locks that I can manually use, right? Because especially we've mentioned with where we live, your windows will freeze up. If you accidentally hit your power window button, you'll burn out the motor and then you, can, you can't use your window anymore. <laughs> and it's an expensive thing to fix. Power windows are much slower than manual windows, right? And if I only have two doors on my car and I can easily reach and hit that other one, you know, I feel like should, does that mean that all coupes should come with manual locks and, and windows? No, because if you have, maybe you have an older person or, or a person of shorter stature who can't reach over and do it or, you know, whatever the case. Well, limitations you have the limitations on motions. There should be options. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. So it's an interesting, interesting employment of it. Um, do you want to want, oh, let's talk about Occam's broom now. <laughs> I love this one because it's relatively new and Occam didn't come up. <laughs> uh, a guy named Sidney Brent, Brent, um, Brentner came up. But it's essentially, uh, he calls it, uh, Dennett calls it an anti-thinking tool. As, as one, because you know, when you're, when you're the, the classic, right? If, you, if you're cleaning your house and you've got all this, you're sweeping the dust, sometimes people lift up a rug and sweep the dust under 
rather than just putting it in the pan and then putting it in the garbage can, it's 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 sloppy, right? It's it's allowing oneself off the hook. It's, uh, in some ways, it's it's not removing what's there; it's just hiding what's there, and that's why it's an anti-thinking kind of thing. So it essentially is is about uh, you, you, the <laughs> the rather childlike, in some ways, uh, notion that you can't see what's there. So if I hide some things, then I'll make a nice a nice theory or a, a, a nice explanation for how things work, and I don't have to take into account that stuff that's not there. Uh, you know, which reminds me of a of, of a moment long ago when when my um, then fiance and I in college were taking care of a faculty member's uh, daughter. We were close with the faculty, and we uh, and the and the girl was, I think, four four years old. And I won't repeat exactly what she said, but she was in the bathtub, and we could hear her muttering something, and and. and my fiance was sitting watching her, and I was just outside the door. She was cursing. And and my fiance went over, and the now wife, she went, What's going on? You can't hear me because my ears are under the water. And she was just saying these curse words because they were fun to say. But but she thought she was perfectly fine doing it because, <laughs> you know, that to me is Occam's broom. Right, right. <laughs> you can't hear it, so it's okay that I'm doing it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so there's there's a lot of interesting um, ways that this can be represented. I think, you know, in the book he talks about um, bad science being done that way, right? Where, okay, um, I design a study. Um, so I start out with a certain from a certain theoretical perspective i start out with a certain bias in um my my study design i conduct the study um and then i choose a statistical method that sort of um is copacetic with the results that i want to see and then i um write a paper that um you know either doesn't talk about or downplays other theoretical perspectives, um, presents my um, treatment of the scenario as being um, objective and f- clear of any sort of um, bias. Um, don't mention the employment of the statistical procedure as being um, possibly not appropriate to the study design or the study design not being appropriate to... Um, <laughs> the thing that you are you're trying to to look at uh and then um putting it out there as something that is well here's a scientific uh here's a scientific discovery right um which is something that that uh we talked about i think it was last week i was talking about it with um with uh psychology where uh you know some of these out outdated psychological concepts these reductionist ones will stick around because because of the you have the simplest number of things right x causes y that's much easier for um a a news article to publish on it's much easier for a lay person to understand um and so 
that's Occam's broom, right? Oh, well, look, we have a we have a few number of elements, and so it, it's right. it's much easier, you know. Until we forget that correlation does not mean causation. Yeah, <laughs> right, right, right. Or that there's possible other explanations for what mm-hmm. we found, or mm-hmm. that you know maybe the the things that we the way that we looked at it wasn't wasn't necessarily appropriate. And this can fool anybody. Oh, yeah, yeah. So uh, you know when he uh, in the book, Dennett talks about Thomas Nagel, who's a major philosopher who was uh, somewhat taken in by a book of 10, 15 years ago that that reported to have some explanations that seemed almost elegant, received great reviews and everything, but it was never vetted by other scientists. Hmm. And because the assumption was, uh, whether the assumption was planted by the writer or it was just how it worked, you know, the, I'm not going to try to go there, but the assumption was that it had been vetted, that it had been um, had input from other scientists practicing in cellular uh, genetics and cellular science, and it wasn't. And so it got this stamp of approval uh, enthusiastically from a top-level philosopher uh, and sort of off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this is, you know... Like you said, it, it it can fool anybody, and it's something that you know a lot of this stuff. Um, you learn a little bit by bit as you go through school, but I mean, I'm, I'm halfway through a doctoral program now, and I'm still learning learning ways of identifying bad science, right? And you go, oh, okay, so this thing that you know I I thought was was scientific, pretty well grounded in, in good science, really wasn't, you know. And that that makes you rethink, you know, how you how you approach knowledge, you know, epistemologically, um, and and how you look for um, what what things are are true. And it requires you to question your your own assumptions so much. And I think it's reasonably safe to say, as a universal, that human beings. Uh, fall back immediately in a reactionary word, the word you used before, sense, uh, to be on the defensive, to <laughs> respond to something outrageous, and, and, and falling back to really thinking about, well, what is it that's setting me off about this? What are the issues going on? You can still find reasons to be uh, justifiably outraged or troubled or whatever it happens to be, but at least you are trying to think to yourself. You're not jumped. Another one of those Occam's razor things that, that I think is applicable is uh, husband arrives home late from work. Uh, it's the first thought that he's out having an affair <laughs> uh, or, or that um, there's been an accident, he's in trouble and oh no, or well, is it just bad traffic that that day? Well, okay, you take that and you uh, and you and apply it to Occam's broom, and um, the husband, if he were uh, not behaving in a, a way that might be ethical for his spouse, might find reasons to shove the other stuff. Oh, here's here's a story that I've told mm. to cover myself, or it may just be that it was bad traffic. Right? It was both. Occam's razor and Occam's broom uh, are I, meant to make us really think about 
the proposition or the idea that's put before us. A, a kid uh, fails an English test. And the kid's immediate response is, well, well that teacher's against me, that teacher's then against me, all, all the way through the teacher designed the test so that I would fail, and, and so on. Now, it's not, it's not uh, inconceivable that in one particular situation, in a, in a low moment, that might have happened, but it's unlikely that that, that was done. The more likely is that the, the child, the kid, hasn't yet learned some of the things that that test was asking about, which doesn't mean that the child couldn't learn it. Uh, it might mean, well, it wasn't presented in ways the child could understand, or the child just wasn't paying attention. Any number of possibilities, but to immediately leap to somebody's trying to get me, that 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 is our go-to um, Occam's uh, razor misread Occam's broom at full speed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that um, I think the important thing with it, as in much of what we talk about, is that. Occam's razor and broom, these aren't static principles. It's no. very contextually based. So like in your first example, right? We can say, you know, okay, well, it's ridiculous for the wife to jump to the conclusion that the husband's cheating. But the length of time he's gone really matters, right? If he disappeared for seven years and came back, <laughs> maybe, maybe yeah. you'd have a different explanation. Man, I from, had a wrong turn here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you might have a different explanation than if he was late five minutes, right? Um, you know, and the same thing with uh, with any of these scenarios is that I think an important point, an important part of employing these tools is. Um, to readily identify the context that it is. Like you said, why would you assume the hoof prints are zebras? Well, if you are, if you're in Africa, that might be a logical thing. It's, you know, there's, so there's context to it. Um, and I think that does help us identify um, some of the Occam's broom things, right? I can't remember all of the examples that he used in the book to, to help I identify them, but I know anecdotally, um, some of the things that I've found in academia, right, mm -hmm. is, um, again, is simple explanations, um, simple ex oversimplified explanations for complex phenomenon um, all, will appear as Occam's razor initially, uh, but under further scrutiny will fall apart, mm -hmm. right? Um, the language that is used by an academic in presenting um, results is important. Uh, if there's there, there's really um, no need for somebody who is pretty self-assured that they're doing good science um, to take an adversarial or disparaging tone of another scientific um, theory, yeah. right? You can point out flaws. You can advocate your own theory with self-assured confidence in an objective way if you believe that what you're presenting is the truth, right? Um, citations uh you know if if what i ran across this in one article that i was reading um where the the author was using adversarial language towards another paradigm and then on top of that um he had citations all throughout his work right 
but it was the same six people yeah, over and over and over <laughs> again, right? There was, there was no diversity in it. And so what that tells you is that there's, there's no scientific consensus that this is the correct approach. Mm-hmm. There's a small group of people in the, in the academic community that agree, and then they just pat each other on the back about yeah. what they've found. And, and they might not be wrong, but, but it's not yeah. a representative. Right. And, that, and, that, and so the caution... The um, Dennett says, uh, this is a quotation, Brenner coined the term Occam's broom. When he did, he wasn't talking about creationism and conspiracy theories. He was pointing out that in the heat of battle, even serious scientists sometimes cannot resist overlooking some data that seriously undermine their theory. It's a temptation that must be resisted no matter what. Mm. If the data tells you something, then, then you go with it. The trouble is when people start making updates. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which which happens occasionally, but much more commonly, it's what you just mentioned. Where, um, and this this doesn't necessarily have to be um, a uh, a necessarily uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not malignant, but uh, it doesn't have to be yeah, malign yeah. approach, right? Where what will happen is if if you're operating at the level of academia where you are going to make um, cutting-edge discoveries, there's you're going to have to do a lot of research, right? And so I think that what Occam's broom really comes down to is that a good academic, right, is going to look at all of all of the research that's been done in the field and then form new conclusions based off of that. But what happens more commonly than we'd like to admit is that the scientist who has, like we've talked about, is is a human being with their own biases, with their own perspectives, doesn't read all of the literature in the field. What they read is the literature that coincides with their opinions and with their biases, and then tries to make a new discovery based off of that information. So it's not necessarily that they were trying to mislead people in that case, but it's just they're operating from an incomplete picture of what the field is actually saying because they didn't even bother to read or interact with research that it was yeah. not done from their point of view. Right. And there are, and there are enormous capitalistic pressures. Yeah. Uh, as research and development diminishes, what's supposed to come out of research and development, the expectation increases. And so... Mighty hard to resist not giving in to the pop culture gives us those things. What happened to Norman Osborn in the Spider-Man movies? He didn't want to take all of his his serum. He didn't want to take it back to formula the way his board told him to. No, I'm going to drink it now, and I'm going to become a Green Goblin. That's goofy, but it's but it's really a, a, a fun little cartoon for it. Yeah, and you, I mean, you see it happening. Now, I was just reading an article the other day about um, a longevity researcher who, um, you know, he had this idea that this this certain compound was going to aid with longevity, but he didn't want to wait for it to go through clinical trials, so he just started injecting himself with it, you know, and had been doing it for for a while, you know, that is a a dangerous way to go. So I mm-hmm. think that leads us to the last question, which is: Is there a danger in employing? a tool like Occam's razor. Does the razor cut both ways? <laughs> or <laughs> nice if it's properly employed, it works 
but we can operate under assumptions that maybe lead us to think we're using it, but we're actually not. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it does cut both ways, depending on your intent. Mm. Uh, your, uh, really, it's, it's your intention. If your intention is to try to think clearly, and you're using it as a, a principle, not as it must be this way, Let, let's try out the, the rule of thumb and see uh, it, what fits and what doesn't here. It doesn't mean you're ruling out complexity. But if you follow it as a law, it can lead you the wrong way because it can rule out a necessary complexity. And and if you're just going to throw it out because it's not simple, then we go back to the word simple. So, yeah, I think it does. I think yeah. it cuts both ways. Yeah, I guess a, a, razor, a razor can give you a shave, but it can cut you too. Cuts you too. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Until next time, keep on.